Well, my, my wife has a uh, very large extended family. There's a lot of them. It's kind of overwhelming. About 90% of them all live in the same town, which is also overwhelming. And about a couple of times a year, maybe it's Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter, uh, you are invited, though according to Grandma, demanded to come back to Choctaw and feast. You come together, you spend time with family, there's 40 or 50 of them. They're all in the yard or running around or in the kitchen, and there's just food everywhere. There's no, there's no arrangement of it. It's just all on a counter, and, and it's all there for you. Uh, I remember the first time I went in the sequential times. It's kind of amazing to, to look at these people whom I took their daughter, their granddaughter, their niece, their cousin, their aunt. I took her away. And one time we didn't return. And I heard about it. And we went back. But they invited me even to the table. There were, there were so many things that I could have. There wasn't this more family and now this newly Griffin family, but everyone was invited to the table because we're family. The church I grew up in, uh, which was way smaller then than it is now, it was about a couple of hundred people then and around 3,000 now, it, it had a regular monthly potluck dinner on a Sunday night where they would partake of the Lord's Supper and eat together and enjoy another Bible lesson. Uh, and it was called the Agape Feast. And let me just say, it was amazing. I don't remember if we went to all of them, but we went to a lot. Uh, and they were important to us and they were important to the church because this is where people would gather enjoy around a dinner table. People would come, people would bring stuff. There was a huge collection of food scattered across tables. There was no arrangement of it. It was great, and that's when the church also did the Lord's Supper together, reminding of the feast that will come. Now, potlucks are amazing. If you've never been to a potluck, uh, that's really sad, uh, because potlucks are truly unbelievable. Uh, I love it when there's a party, and you say, you know, what can we bring? And they say, anything you want to share with other people. That's really what a potluck is. You just share and you bring enough for others. But at this church, it was unbelievable by what people would bring. I remember uh, that my first time we went to this potluck, I looked across the table and I discovered that there were geniuses in, their, in this church because there wasn't casseroles, there wasn't pots full of food, there was McDonald's, <laughs> there was Taco Bell. And my dad's reminded me, I'd forgotten this part, but my dad reminded me that when I first saw that, I exclaimed, finally, something from me. They thought about me. And that changed the trajectory of my own life. Uh, when I went to a, a small church in college, there was about 70 people there, and over time they started having uh, semi-regular potlucks. And so, you know, what do you bring to that potluck? Well, you know, did I raid the fraternity kitchen or use something? No, I marched down to McDonald's and bought McGriddles with the money that I took from my parents. And I brought tacos to this feast because I wanted them to taste and see that the Lord is good. <laughs> Why? Because these were my friends. These, this was my family. This was my church. I didn't, want to, I didn't want to be cheap, not that casseroles are cheap. You all have brought them to Brook and I, I consumed them mightily. But the New Testament tells Christians that, that something that makes us so different than the world around us is who we find our identity in. The world spends a lot of time in trying to diversify in who we find our identity in, but, but what the gospel call is, is you find your identity in, in one thing, and actually it's in one person. And when you find your identity in that one person, it's amazing what happens as an outflow of that. John chapter 1 says, To all who did receive him, being Christ, 
who believed in Christ's name, he gave them the right to then be children of God. When you find your identity in Christ, you're actually ushered into a completely new family. So everyone who believes in Jesus belongs, amazingly, to the same family. Now, I want you to consider uh, briefly some of the ways that the Bible talks about how the, the people of God are seen as the family of God. Every Christian has the same father, the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you and I might say our prayers together, we say our father. When, when Christians all become part of a family, they, they become part of the family all the same way. You, all and I, you and I all join the family of God the same way. It says in Ephesians that, that in love he predestined us for adoption through Christ. According to the purpose of his will, we join the family by adoption. Another way to look at it is that we are born again into God's family. You and I may have been born in Iowa or California or Russia or Kingfisher, but we're part of God's family because we've been born again in him. Once we become members of God's family, we enter into a close relationship with our father. Now, unlike some fathers, he's not distant. He's not absent. He's not unkind, but just the opposite. It says in Romans chapter 8, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And since we're God's children, we are invited to eat around the family table, which is what is described as the Lord's Supper. And we even plan to, to attend a family reunion in heaven where we will enjoy a feast, all of us, all of God's people, with the Lamb who had been slain is now on the throne giving us all of his good fruit. Belonging to this family is so wonderful. Listen to how First John talks about it. It says, how great is the love of the Father that he's lavished on us that we would be called children of God. And that is what we are with an exclamation point. Now, I could go on, but like any family, uh, family can be wonderful, but family can be really difficult. Family can get really hard. Now, the tone of this passage seems to match that. You go to this passage, and there's just, it seems like a, a random uh, pivot from what Paul had been talking about in 1 Timothy's chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. And now, all of a sudden, he starts talking about what looks like people at a dinner table. The tone of this passage is a little strange. It feels a little strange. The personal nature of Paul's interaction with Timothy is momentarily set aside, and now some particular and specific directions for life in the church begins to come from the mouth and the pen of Paul to Timothy. This understanding, I think, I've been helped in the last couple of weeks to have this crystallized, that he spent a good amount of time talking about how you and I should be rightly ordered and organized in the church. You've got elders and deacons and children and um, authority and who's in charge and what are we to do. You've, got, you've kind of got your parameters set or your guidelines set, and now he's going to go into for a while saying, okay, this is how you ought to live inside that church, how you ought to act and operate. And it's kind of amazing to see unfold. It may feel distant, these, this text, in many ways, because it's talking about people in poverty or people in different generations. And it feels distant to us because in many ways we live in a really affluent culture compared to the world around us. And we have things like insurance and financial tools and 
massive health complexes to help us prepare for a long life. It feels like this text is a whole different world. These people are compared to us. They're apparently poor, and they're apparently divided by their generations. You can imagine today how churches build themselves. They, they might have a sanctuary here where everyone can come to, but then they have a fellowship hall way over there, possibly even a different building. Or they've got a youth complex that looks so different than the world around them because they want the kids to be over there and the adults to be over here. And then for occasionally, for a pep talk, we might come together. But in this passage, it seems like there's the call for all of us, young and old, to live together. And there's a call for all of us to watch out for those who are truly alone. So Paul is giving instruction for that church, caring for that church. But because it's the word of the Lord, he's giving us instruction, this church, and how we are to care for our church. However different our culture situation is, these are grand principles to apply. Now, your bulletin outline is blank. I've got three points, and I'll probably repeat them so that if you're a note taker, you can see them. But the three points are, are the outline of the scriptures. So there's a couple of verses that all fit together in one argument, and then another section, point two, and then a third section in point three. There's, a, there's, an, there's an entire emphasis that's being revealed and that's also given there in the argument of the outline that you got in front of there. But the first thing I want you to see in these first two verses is that the church, firstly, is called to be a place of mutual accountability, but we should relate to each other differently. So we're to be mutual accountable, but we're to treat one another differently. It sounds different, doesn't it? Look at verses 1 and 2, because here Timothy is being instructed, the receiver of this text is being instructed in how to relate to different people in the church. Paul's principles, or Paul's principle is this, everyone is not the same in the church, so Timothy should treat people differently. And that cuts against our culture, doesn't it? After all, our own Declaration of Independence tells us that all men are created equal, and even laws after that have been emphasizing that we should treat one another based on our equality. And in our day and time, it's been taken to mean that because all human beings are equal, all of them should be treated in the same way. But Paul says, Timothy, don't treat everyone the same. Isn't that interesting? You might wonder, whoa, is that the gospel message? Yes, it is. You see, the church is to be a place of mutual accountability, where we're holding one another accountable to a common person, Christ. So we link arms with various people around us to hold one another accountable to Christ. We're to be helping one another grow in faith. That's what discipleship means in the local church. But care is to be taken in the way that, in that, way that we relate to one another as we hold one another accountable. Look at verse 1. Timothy is told, don't speak to an older man as if they're naive newcomers. But when they err, plead or appeal to them as you would a father. And you're not to speak to younger men in judgmental ways, with haughtiness, but you're to speak to them like they're your brother. So if the church sees itself as a family, then it should treat itself like a family, meaning it's going to relate to one another with respect to older men and, and brotherhood to younger men. So when Timothy, as a young man, finds an older saint strained from the faith, or even saying wrong things, as you might appeal to in chapter 1, he's not to speak to that man harshly or with condescension. But rather, he's to see or treat that man like his own dad, where the gospel would be magnified through respect of this person over him in many ways. 
These older men are to be treated as fathers in the faith, fathers in the Lord, and these younger men are to be treated as brothers in the Lord. I hope you, I hope you see the tension here. There's a, there's a top level, it seems like, where the bottom level is to respect what's above him, but then there's also this action by the top level to bring up this younger level to their level. So there's respect towards your father, but then there's an older man seeing the younger man as a brother in the faith. Friends, I wonder if you can show your faith in Christ by doing this. Young men, as you look at this text, how could your pursuit of godliness increase by getting to know an older man in the faith? Actually asking him questions. Not questions about like the ways of the world or you know, how, to, how to work with tools or how to mow your yard or something like that, but, but helpful advice on how to study the word, how to remain devoted to his wife, What's his repentance life look like? What's his prayer life look like? Young man, the call of this text is for you to look up and see these are saints that God has put you around. And and they may teach you how to pursue pursue the Lord more deeply. Now, older men, how could your pursuit toward godliness increase by seeing younger men around you as brothers? Not outsiders, not people who are beneath you, but actually people who are beside you in the faith, who dine at the same table of Jesus' crucified body. It would be strange if we had a communion table for those over 60 and those over 30 and and those who just travel from far away, wouldn't it? That doesn't seem like a brotherhood here. But we got to remember that there could be teaching to love God's statutes from an older man to a younger, how to pursue their wife even in the days of old. You could teach them how to read their Bible. Brothers from time to time love to team up. You see two, you see two, so Brooke has two older brothers, and from time to time, they they would team up against her. Uh, And when we think about what we can do in the faith, when we see each other as brothers, the advancement of the kingdom starts to seem just one step away, doesn't it? Now, Paul doesn't start with a brotherhood of men. it's, It's not just that Timothy should minister to men, but he's also to deal or minister with women, too. He goes on to say, you appeal to older women as mothers. These women are not to be neglected in the care. You know, there's, there's often said about men's ministries, I've been talking about this with several other people the last couple of months, there's often called uh, men's ministries where their attempt is to pour into men with the hope and attempt that those men would then pour into other women and children. But what the Word of God says to Timothy is pour into men, pour into women, treat them like an older mother, treat them like a younger sister. Appeal to older women as mothers. Even if they go astray, appeal to them gently and kindly like you would a mother. These women are not to be neglected. Well, I just don't really talk to women. I feel uncomfortable. I just won't spread the gospel with them. They're also to be rebuked from time to time, but when they are to be rebuked, they're to be rebuked as you would your mother. They're also to be challenged to live the Christian life, but when those older women sin, they're to be approached despite their standing And because of their standing, they're to be approached with the same consideration as one would a stumbling mother. And a loving son corrects his mother. What love would a son show if he wouldn't even correct his mother if she was an heir? With a searching heart, a wrestling at the throne of grace beside her, aiming to grow in spiritual wisdom alongside her. Timothy is to approach older women of the church like this. But also notice what he says in verse 2. He's to approach younger women as, as sisters. They're to be admonished. Their spiritual best interests are to be looked out for. They're to be treated as sisters. They're to be dealt with in purity, though. It, makes, it, has, this, it has this little 
This little add-on of that phrase, when you treat a younger sister like a sister, remember to do so in purity. Timothy is to be careful in his relationships with females, especially younger females, that everything would be above reproach, that he would deal with them in utmost integrity and with sexual purity. And we know the stories all the time of pastors who fall into sin because they've gone to someone who is not theirs, and they clearly don't treat them as you would a sister. In part, what it, what it exposes is infidelity in the church is actually equal to incest. That's how serious the family of God is to treat one another as a father, as a son, as a mother, as a sister. So, one study Bible notes this about this passage. Paul provided the church godly relational wisdom that spans across age and gender. How beautiful are church members who know who they are and then are treated as they are properly as fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters. Such a graced family knows how to behave in the household of God. Other cultures do this way better than us, and I'll just say we're a pretty white culture. You look at the African-American church in America, they treat old women like they're their mothers. And if you act up in church, whoever that lady is, she's older than you, she'll bop you on the head. I'm going to treat you like a son. I'll discipline you. You go to Asian cultures and how they treat one another within the church, there's, a, there's the honor bestowed, there's the bowing towards one another. And here, what Paul is commanding us is to be, um, it's to be respectful to older men. It's to be fraternal to younger men. It's to be honoring to older women. And it's to be a brother and sister or a sister and sister to younger women. That's the first thing that we see in our passage, that the Christian church is to be a place of accountability even when we don't treat each other the same way. And in part, you're doing this because you are actually serving one another on, on the life stage that God has them. And by doing so, you actually bestow to the world a different picture of what a family really looks like. We've all seen a family that is dysfunctional. Some of you may be in families that are dysfunctional. None of you would say that that magnifies the glory of God, would you? And some of you, when you come from a family meal and you go, man, that was really great. That was really sweet. This was a moment. This vacation was a moment. This time at mom's house was a moment where the brotherhood and the sisterhood is magnifying the Lord. Now, the second thing I want you to see from this text, the next several verses, verses 3 through 8, is that the church is to show Christ's love tangibly to those in need. The church is to show Christ's love practically, tangibly to those in need but not preempt the family. So show Christ's love, but don't keep the family, the nuclear family, from doing this. Second thing is this. Look at verses 3 through 8. Here Paul speaks to Timothy about the role of family and church in the care of needy Christians in the congregation. He explicitly speaks about widows here in this passage, but what he says could be applied to any of those who are in need, not just widows, but his point here is widows. There was clearly a problem with widows not being cared for. Paul's point to Timothy is that the church is to show Christ's love tangibly to those in need, but not preempt the families of these members from helping. You'll remember that Jesus told his disciples in John 13 that the whole world would know that you're my disciples by the way you love one another. He'd given them an example in John 13 of washing the disciples' feet. Basically, their love was not simply to be in word, but it's also to be in deed, an outward expression of love towards others. You see this in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 6, where we find that uh, that was exactly what was going on in the Christian church in Jerusalem. 
As the Christian church in Jerusalem started growing, it needed to start caring for those who were truly in need, and it started caring for those improperly. And the world around it would have taken notice. You all say you love one another, but you're boxing out these people, these widows, and you're including these widows. That doesn't seem like you're a family one in the faith. But notice the instruction that he gives here in verse 3. that The church, he says, must honor needy widows. Honor those who are widows indeed, your translation might say. Where Paul emphasizes to Timothy that the church has definite responsibility to care for truly needy widows and by extension to all those who are truly needy in its midst. Now, honor here, you've heard that word before in the scriptures, honor here, of course, means simply more than to treat with high regard, but it means to give practical attention to and even material support to those widows who are truly in need. But notice that Paul himself makes the indication that those who are being supported are not just widows, but they're truly widows, or they're indeed widows, or they're widows indeed. Now, a widow indeed, for Paul, is a woman who truly, having been widowed, meaning her husband died, has no one else in her life to help. She's clearly alone. She has no children who are there, She has no people in the congregation who are part of her family to care for her. She has no brothers or sisters who will care for her. She has no parents who are there in the congregation to help. That is, she has no family relations to come and to be with her as a safety net in a time of vulnerability. And so she's a person who is truly alone. She truly feels like a nobody. She visually is portrayed as walking into the synagogue and being alone. There's no one else who was called to be beside her as a family. But second, I want you to notice that she's a person who is truly truly displaying a commitment to Christ Jesus in the life of the congregation. So it's not just a widow indeed. It's not just someone who is truly alone, but but is someone who is displaying her commitment to Christ. This is not someone who's living nominally a Christian life. She's not just someone who professes, but by their deeds reveals her lack of faith. And you see this description in verses 5 through 7. Let me, let me read it out loud again. It says, She is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So you see that two balance. She's alone, but she continues in the faith. She, in verse 6, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Timothy is told to command these things, teach these things as well, so that they may be above reproach. Now, this is important because Paul is perfectly aware of the phenomenon of children who refuse to take responsibility for caring for their parents. There's this Dutch old proverb that says, it seems easier for one poor father to rear ten children than for ten rich, ten rich children to care for their poor father. Paul knew the problem of families refusing to take responsibility for the care of their own family members, and Paul has some very strong words for those who refuse to do so. Look at verse 8. But if anyone who does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is even worse than an unbeliever. The, the magnification of the gospel is flattened when your own family members refuse to care for you. He's worse than an unbeliever, worse than one who is not a disciple of Jesus. And so Paul takes very seriously the family responsibility and the care for elderly parents and for those who are in the situation of being widowed. Now, it's fascinating to me that in the Bible, the the whole Bible uses a couple of things again and again to display a, a glorious view of who God is, 
Again and again, it talks about God being a shelter and a provider of food. Now, in part, because what happens if you don't have food? You die. But God, in his good grace, keeps you alive. What happens if you don't have shelter? Over time, you'll die just from the elements altogether. But what the gospel does, the whole Bible uses food and shelter as esteemed examples of safety and love and joy. God is a rock. God is a shelter, a covering during a storm. God gives food often out of nowhere. His prom- and he promises a feast at the end with his own children. And in the meantime, a hopeful meal to us in the Lord's Supper. And so if, if there is a widow who is truly alone, or any other woman who is truly alone in the church of God, and they're not being provided for by their own family, there is no way that this is a view of the trueness of who God is. And so how are children to act? What's true love and what's true support? A dry head and a full stomach. So for some who do suffer and are truly alone, very alone, indeed alone, the church there steps up to provide. And for those who are not alone, the church reminds their family of the providential appointment of familial brotherhood and sisterhood. So what God in his word calls us to do is to show Christ's love tangibly to those in need, but not preempt the family. And and Paul goes on to explain to Timothy a a little bit of a case study of what this looks like. This is the the third and final section of this passage, where, where the third thing that he does is he says that the Christian life is never a matter of merely taking or getting or receiving. The Christian life is not merely the taking, getting, or receiving, but rather it's the giving. It's a display of the giving that magnifies the Lord, the regular operation of those who have not received from those who give, and the regular pattern of those who have aim to give what they have. Look at the final verses, verses 9 through 16. Here Paul makes it clear, and I think it's captivating, that those who are supported by the church are to join the church's ministry advancement. But there's a clarification on what it looks like to join the ministry's advancement. And at the same time, he makes it clear that those who minister alongside elders and deacons of the church are to be held in the highest standard of Christian living. You look at this, you look at this selection of Scripture, and it, and it kind of looks like the qualifications given to elders and deacons. There's, there's an example of if you're to receive money, life support from the church, the requirement is, is that you need to be godly. And so there's a lot of examples in here of what it looks like for a a widowed woman who's very much in need is godly. I think it's captivating here how you, you got these things patterned after one another. The Christian life is never a matter of merely taking or giving or receiving, but it's always a display of giving, even if we have very little, materially speaking, to give. He speaks in verse 9 of a widow being put on a list. Now you might think, what in the world does it mean for a widow to be put on a list? Oftentimes, it's great to be put on a list. Oftentimes, you might get nervous of being put on a list. It's great to be on the principal's honor roll, but it's not very good to be on the top 10 most wanted, is it? So what does it mean for a true widow to be put on a list for the church to see? Well, this list involves a widow who is in the situation of material need described in verses 3 through 8. She's a widow indeed. She has no one else to care for her. But this widow indeed is also one who performs spiritual and charitable functions in the church. In other words, she assists the deacons and the elders in the ministry of the church. She's over 60 years old. She pledges herself that she will serve the church for the rest of her life. And she will assist in ways that the church deems fit in 
the church deems best. She'll be an intercessor for the church. She'll pray. She'll give counsel to younger women. She'll visit the sick. She'll prepare women for baptism and communion. She'll give guidance and direction to other widows and orphans supported by the church. She'll, she'll serve the church in all these ways. And I think it's, I think it's very interesting. This, this woman, these women, who had no means for material support of herself, is here fully supported by the church. And yet, she's viewed and esteemed as a person who has a lot to give the church in return. If, if I need full financing by you, you might be tempted to think that I have nothing to give you. And what we often do in the modern evangelical world is we often pe- put people to work by saying, we'll give you money, but if you could come by and sweep the floors in exchange, that'd be great. Or, or maybe we can, we can have you help with menial tasks around the church. That way, that way you won't feel guilty about getting you know, $1,000 from us a month because you, you need to keep the bills paid. And so we, we look at giving these older women things to do, but what does God's word say these women give to the church as receiving financial support. They pray. They witness. They're freed up to evangelize. They're freed up to instruct younger women. They're freed up to do the ministry of the church. And this follows the pattern that Paul has given Timothy of what does it mean to live like a Christian in the church? Does it mean to volunteer for 50 practical things? You may want to do that, but to really live like a Christian in the church to really join others in advancing the kingdom going forward is to do things like pray, admonish, rebuke, encourage, sit next to the lonely person at Christmas and sing your head off, reminding them of the heaven that will come. It's just a beautiful reminder of of these in no way would be women who would be thought of as uh, they're receiving a handout because all they're doing is spending the rest of their lives praying, for God to come, and in the meantime, God to bring up people in faith. That's a, that's a well-worthy exchange, isn't it? She, in receiving the outpouring of the church's support for her time and need, will also turn around and give her the ability to give herself for the advancement of the gospel. So in this passage, Paul establishes a principle that the Christian life is never merely about receiving, of taking, but it always entails giving back that which we have received. We have received grace in God, in Christ. And so we give back for the advancement of that going forward. Paul gives some strict warnings here about putting younger widows on the list. You may find this to be the strangest part. This is surprising. Why wouldn't we want younger women? Why just the old? And you can see the obvious difficulties of a younger woman making a pledge to serve the church in exchange for the church's support in her time of need. And then then maybe later on deciding that she'd rather remarry, join another family, or maybe start another family. And so Paul gives this very practical, commonsensical advice. Younger widows, don't make this pledge. Instead, remarry, join another family, start another family. Don't commit yourself to this. You have the rest of your life. Be involved in the normal trends and stations of life. Don't make this extraordinary commitment. (laughs) Almost saying, if you're young... You can't handle what these older women are about to do. It's too good. It's too worthy. Give yourself over to other things, and in the meantime, let them pray for you. I hope you see the the amazing wisdom of Paul here. Paul isn't just looking to fill a slot in ministry, as many of us do. We we just constantly. I I found that in my time in life, I'm a horrible recruiter. 
I have a very hard time with just getting people to join me in stuff. Oftentimes, when we panic, when we find help or look for help, we just find any old body that'll fit in a slot. But notice what Paul does here is he's looking out for the good of any who would volunteer for this. What, what will help the church continue to magnify the Lord? He's given some parameters on this that, that may seem foreign to us, but the principle here is he's looking out for their good. Because in their good, it's the church's good. And when it's the church's good, it's the God's word being magnified to this end. I hope you see the wisdom here. He's not looking for labor for a church's building. He's always thinking about the well-being of those who will be ministering, the gospel going out in word by deed. And he says, of course, that those who are going to serve on the widow's list must not be simply widows in need, but they must be those who have practiced hospitality, who have reared children and rendered services to ministers and assisted the afflicted and been been devoted to every kind of good work. So those who are going to serve the church are going to meet the qualifications, meaning if we've got scandalous serving widows in the church, it diminishes or it brings down the magnification of the gospel. So even they have requirements of what it looks like to be on this list. They're to be godly, just like deacons. Deacons are to be godly. Elders are to be godly. If you have ungodly elders, the world will look at your church and say, there's nothing different there. If you have ungodly deacons or widows, the world will look at that church and say, There's nothing different there to the point where all the delegation of authority is handed down to the very membership of the church. And if you have a membership of the church that relishes an ungodliness, which is 1 Timothy chapters 1 and 2, then the church will be viewed by the world as nothing worth giving your whole life over in faith for. Now, how wise is this? In our day and time, we tend to think of volunteers in terms of what they have to offer us and apart from their character. And Paul says, look at the character of all those who are volunteering in the church, and unless they meet these markers of character, don't allow them to minister. And secondly, care about them. Don't just use them, care about them, about their station in life. Paul's words of wisdom give us principles for how we ought to operate today and how we operate in these ways, and we manifest the tangible love of Christ for his people to a watching world. Now, guys, in conclusion, I hope you see the gravity and the emphasis of this passage. Many of you are going to walk away from this passage and say, it truly has nothing to do with me. But I hope that you see that the church is an outflow of the very gospel of Jesus Christ. The operation of the church is an outflow of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A church is called to to focus itself on the gospel, to live in light of the gospel's truth, and to behave a certain way toward other Christians. And we far too often don't do this, or we need to remember that we will never do this in order to earn God's love, But because of God's love, we've been made his children in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. So I hope that you see this through the lens of the person of Jesus, through his life, where in eternity past, he was, and he is, and then in his glorious arrival, he actually descended to earth, taking to himself flesh. And in doing so, he lived a certain way. He lived, according to the scriptures, perfectly. Without air, no sin. There's no air inside of him. There's no blackness on a whiteboard or no whiteness on a blackboard. He was perfect in how he lived. And then he was given over by his own doing, but by the sin of man, he was given over to death. A ruthless, awful death by crucifixion on a cross. But because he was so perfect, and because he is the God-man, that sin that man committed, crucifying the Savior, actually serves as a substitute for all the people who would encompass the church later on, where you and I recognize that in our sin, we could not survive this, we could not earn our way out of this, 
But he who knew no sin actually became the sacrifice of all who would believe in him. He really died there. And then he was really buried, where he went down again. He came down, lived, he was killed, and he went down again. But he wasn't done. He went up, and he was resurrected gloriously three days later, according and fulfilling the scriptures of the old, so that when you and I would later place our trust in him as our Savior, he was not only a sacrifice for us, but a conquering hero for us. And he taught that very message for 40 more days to people saying, if you believe in my resurrection, if you believe in my crucifixion, if you believe in my life in its entirety, then you will live and reign with me forever. And then he ascended on high, where he rules and reigns forever. And you might think, that's a cool story about him. But where does it involve me? You may think this has nothing to do with you, but it has everything to do with you in either judgment, where if you don't do what he says, and repent and believe, then you receive eternal judgment. But if you do do what he says, where you repent and believe, you receive everlasting life with this ruler and reigner over everything. You won't be caught in the pit of hell. You'll be living with him. And he offers that to you. If you're here and you're not a Christian today, that very announcement of the gospel that says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, confess with your mouth, believe with your heart, trust in him, that, that is here for you, commanded by him for you to respond to. And for the rest of us who have confessed, who have believed, what has he done? He has taken us from a state of sin to a state of sonship, to a state of family, to a state of children. And he's saying, look at that world who needs to hear my gospel. You will magnify my gospel. It will be louder it will be more glorious if you treat that older man like a father and that young man like a brother, that older woman like a mother and that younger woman like a sister. You'll showcase the glory of God by saying, hey, if you're out there and you're alone, and friends, let's just be honest, in your sin, don't you feel alone? I remember the first time I felt alone, physically. I lived in D.C. I had no friends. <laughs> Two weeks in, I was like, wow. No one cares about me. My family is a thousand miles away. This was before mass text messaging, right? I couldn't even have fake friendships or Instagram where like, oh, I got 30 likes. I got 30 friends. No, you don't. You're alone. I also realized I was spiritually alone. Through the first, I grew up in a church without membership. And I walked away from this glorious church where everyone treated each other in magnificent ways. Why? Because they were brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers. And I walked away and I went, I'm alone. And friends, you are way more alone in your sin than you are in brotherhood. What the gospel says is that you are separated from goodness. You're isolated in deadness. And friends, this is where we are in the passage. When we treat alone people like we would a brother, when we treat alone people who have nothing, like they can have all of the food at the table, how does that not magnify the Lord? You may think the gospel has nothing to do with 1 Timothy, but godly living is an outflow of God's grace. For the way we treat each other, which is differently, the lonely and the isolated, bountifully, this will say everything about our gospel and our hope to a hopeless world. Let's pray.